But church, these are challenging times. Um, and I found myself this week just particularly weary and sad and, and heavy in my spirit. I don't know if you have felt that way too. It's challenging times. There's a weariness that comes with this COVID-19 experience and just now getting to the yellow stages and beginning to emerge from it. There's certainly a weariness there, but even much more so with the strife that is going on in our world uh, and in our country in particular. The racial discord, uh, the murder of George Floyd and the countless um, acts of injustice towards people of color in our country and the gravity of the situation and not knowing how to be uh, a person of impact in the midst of that, how, how to lead our church towards uh, significant impact and, and and in still maintaining the centrality of the gospel. These are challenging times, and I would imagine they are challenging times for you as well. And that's why I was so encouraged as I began to study this week, as I began to read the passage of Scripture that was before us in the, the teaching calendar as we continue looking at Peter and his um, discipleship journey with Jesus that launched into uh, his apostolic calling. Uh, the story that is in front of us today actually brought hope to my soul. It actually brought peace. It gave me uh, opportunity to pause and to reflect on God's goodness and on his bigness and on his uh, ability to be present in the midst of such turmoil in our world. And so today what I want to do as we um, get into this passage of scripture, uh, it's one of my favorite passages of scripture, one of my favorite Jesus stories of uh, the entire Bible, and we've taught on it before here at, at Hope. But today what I want to do is actually just center on three, three reflections from this narrative that give me hope, and I think that give us hope, and that should give our world hope in the midst of such difficult times uh, that we find ourselves in. So if you've copied the scriptures, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, and this is the story of Jesus healing uh, the bleeding woman uh, and also healing Jairus' daughter. And these stories uh, are necessarily intertwined, uh, not just narratively, uh, as that is the writer didn't just simply choose to intertwine them, though he does, but also historically, that is that they happened within each other historically. Uh, and that's why they're written this way. And so we can make no other conclusion than to know that they are deeply connected stories and that the point that God is making, uh, he's doing by including these stories together. So Luke chapter 8, 
verse 40, this is what Luke writes. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, No, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Please don't bother the rabbi anymore. Imagine being Jairus. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. Undoubtedly, his faith is wavering in this moment, but perhaps the healing he had just witnessed could keep his faith moving. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, Jesus Jesus did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James. The three of them get a front row seat for what's going to happen here the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead. She's only asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. Now, this seems like an odd turn of events. How do people who are grief-stricken go instantly to a mocking laughter? And the truth is, because it was societal norm to... um, demonstratively act in grief upon uh, the death of someone in the town. And at times, even people would be brought in to publicly mourn, to value uh, that person's life. And so the, the shift in behavior here is societal, right? It's These aren't necessarily people who are deeply uh, broken up about this, um, but they are people who are perceiving what they see as true. She's dead. She's not sleeping. And when Jesus suggests otherwise, they find this ridiculous. And they laugh at him. Verse 54, But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished. But he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. So here we have this story. And as I mentioned, they are necessarily intertwined stories. Uh, A girl of 12 years old, a woman with a bleeding problem for 12 years. Healing, healing. 
and, and uh, we'll see as we go through this a, a little bit uh, about how these stories play on each other, but there's been more teaching elsewhere that I would encourage you to, to go back and listen to um, from our No Perfect People Allowed series or, or even some prior to that. A few things we need to say before we jump into this. The first is that we need to remember the rabbi-disciple uh, relationship and how that works in the first century world of Jesus. Remember again that as disciples, they are not simply attending a class. They are necessarily attaching their life to the life of Jesus, their rabbi, and they're going with him where he goes. They eat together, they stay together, they process events together, and so they are getting a an intimate look at who Jesus is, how he's processing the world, how he's engaging with people, uh, so forth and so on. And so Jesus' ministry is certainly about what he does for the people, the healings, the casting out demons, the preaching. Certainly those are first and foremost. But also what's happening is Jesus is exposing his disciples to who he actually is. And they are processing this and taking this in too. And this is how the gospel accounts are written. So that we as disciples are meant to be brought along with Jesus in his everyday encounters and, and, and life. In order that we can see how the rabbi lives his faith. Not just read accounts of his sermons. Also what I want us to remember is that Jesus himself tells us uh, in the Gospel of John and elsewhere that he is the perfect representation of the Father. Uh, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That is that when we see Jesus, we see God, right? And we believe as Christians that Jesus is God, uh, one of the three persons of the Trinity. But so it's necessary to remember that we're not just getting a first row seat to Jesus and his ministry. We're actually seeing God uh, in living color processing the world before us. When we see Jesus, we see God. And so the question that I want to get at this morning for us to process together is, what do we actually believe about God? Who do we believe he is? What do we actually believe about God? And does seeing Jesus in this story need to change, or does it change, what we believe about God? Well, again, to get back to the point, I said this story gives me three real significant reasons to find hope in the midst of this incredibly difficult and heavy and challenging season. The first reason for that is because Jesus is aware. Right? Jesus is aware that he is intimately acquainted with the narratives of everyone. That his awareness is not distracted by chaos or complexity or crowds. Right? That is that uh, he can't be distracted from needs of individuals simply by the masses or the mass of struggle. That he is aware. Aware of your needs, your burdens, your struggles. And that in the same way he is aware 
of others' burdens and needs and struggles. We see it uh, point blank in this story. Jesus is on his way. He's on the move to help Jairus. And Jairus was a significant person. The crowds are watching what's going on. And the crowds are all up against him. Everyone wants to see what's happening here. They are on the way to Jairus' house. And then all of a sudden, something happens. No one else is aware of what's going on. Only Jesus knows. Well, that's actually not true. The bleeding woman also knows exactly what she's doing. She reaches out and grabs the corner of Jesus' garment. And it says she's immediately healed. But then Jesus does something astounding. He stops and he says, who touched me? That is that Jesus is aware. There's massive things to be done. There's societal pressure. There's societal movement. And yet Jesus is aware that he's been touched. And Peter, as Peter is off to do, he's a perfect representation of us. He reminds Jesus Dude, everyone's touching you, all right? Let's get on to the business at hand. But here's the cool thing about Jesus. It's not just that he knows he's been touched. It's that he knows he's been touched by her, right? That is not just a feeling of being touched by a bunch of different people, but that he's actually aware of her, in the midst of all of this. You know, many have an impression of God that he is transcendent, right? There's a God, but he's big and he's huge and he's far and I can never really know him and he certainly isn't going to know me. But the story of Jesus, the person in the work of Jesus actually tells us that while transcendence is true about God, he's far greater than we can understand, it is not mutually exclusive from his imminence. That is that he's close to us. The whole story of Jesus, that he would come to the earth, shows us the heart of God to be close to humanity. Why? Because he's aware, not just that humanity needs him and is touching him, but that you do and that I do. And that all the individuals of this world bearing unique and individual struggles, responding to the situations of the day in unique and different ways. That Jesus is aware and he's not distracted by complexity. He's not distracted by crowds. And he's also not distracted by what would seem significant, right? Most of us process the world this way and therefore we process God this way because we lump him into this. That is that the important things are the things that need to be dealt with. And there are huge things going on in our world, not just our country. Things that seem impossible to solve and to deal with. And it seems like in some way that's kind of like the Jairus story, right? He's an important person. The crowds are watching. He's an important person for the crowds. They're on the move. This is the big business to be done. And yet, Jesus 
stops. Now listen, the woman had a problem, right? She'd been bleeding for 12 years. It made her ritually unclean. It was a burden. It was unpleasant. But it was not nearly as dire as Jairus' situation. Not nearly as serious. And perhaps then, we would say, not nearly as significant. And yet, God would disagree with that. That he values the needs of humanity equally. That he pauses amidst the serious headlines of our world to care for the needs of your heart. And of my heart. There's two things about God that theologians remind us, and these are true, and it's good for me to remind us today. That is that God is what we say, what we call omniscient. That means that He is all-knowing. He knows all things. And also that He is omnipotent. That means that He's all-powerful. He can do all things. And here's what I would suggest to you: His omniscience and His omnipotence enable God to be a divine multitasker, right? That is that he can deal with Jairus' circumstances while still dealing with this woman's needs. In our world that feels like it is chaos and who is going to deal with all of these things. And then what about the struggles of my own personal life in these moments that seem so small. And yet there's hope in a God who is concerned and moving towards restorations in the huge things, but who is also pausing to value everyone in the burdens they are uniquely and individually carrying. This is the God that I know. And so I ask you the question again, what do you believe about God? Do you believe that he is intimately aware of your burdens and your struggles and your needs? And do you believe that he is pursuing your restoration and your redemption and pursuing your concerns and pursuing you even in the midst of the chaos of our worlds, even as God's heart breaks because of racial injustice, and, and as he longs and moves towards restoring our world in that way, that he is also moving towards you and towards me and towards all the individual people carrying all these individual concerns. My heart finds hope in a God who is aware. The second thing that gives me hope is that Jesus is impartial. Jesus is impartial. And the scriptures tell us this time and time again that God himself is impartial. And there's a massive cry in our culture now for impartiality, for, for lack of bias, for no prejudice. And, and I think this is a cry that comes straight from the heart of God, and yet it's not something 
that we can conjure up ourselves. It actually has to come from God. But I find hope in these difficult times because I see in Jesus that he is impartial. That is that he moves towards and for individuals without bias. I mentioned before there's a difference and distinctness between Jairus and this woman. Jairus is the leader of the synagogue, therefore he is of societal importance. He would have been revered in his culture and in his town. The woman, on the other hand, because of her issues, was a societal outcast. And whereas Jairus would have been revered, she would have been rejected. Jairus was, as a leader of a synagogue, no doubt always ritually clean and prepared to be in God's presence. And yet, because of this woman's bleeding problem, she would have been perpetually ritually unclean and kept from the temple worship of God. Jairus, because of his status, likely would have been rich. He would have had stuff. And this woman, because of her condition and her circumstances, likely would have been poor. And in that culture, the difference between being man and being woman obviously brought significant differentiation as well. You could not find two people more diametrically opposed when it comes to social status. And yet, Jesus sees them equally. Her need as important as his need. His need as important as her need. And he moves towards them in healing equally. And what's more, we see this heart of Jesus and this impartiality of Jesus uh, as he pauses to address this woman, right? That is that it was not simply okay for Jesus to allow her to be healed in the moment and that he would just allow that to happen and she'd be healed. And I'm certain be incredibly grateful for this. But, you know, the big stuff was to move on to the Jairus circumstances. Certainly that was the compelling narrative of the powerful uh, in that day, you know, or the compelling narrative of the people in power were to, to care for them in that day and likewise in our day. No, Jesus pauses. And this would have been astonishing to the woman, <laughs> to the crowd, to the disciples, and incredibly astonishing to Jairus, whose daughter was hanging in the balance. But see, for Jesus, it's not just okay that she is healed and goes on in anonymity. No, he pauses. He pauses to acknowledge and to affirm her. That is, to give her a face and a name, and therefore a meaning. She is not an afterthought to the story of Jairus' daughter's healing. She actually is going to become the key to understanding a faith that leads to healing.
in Jesus we see a God who is moved in compassion to those on the margins. A God whose heart is for the marginalized. And so when he pauses, he says a few things that are actually incredible in this moment. First, he calls this woman daughter, right? The name he gives her is not her given name. We don't really know what her given name is, but he calls her daughter. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. One, he's acknowledging her full participation in the family of God. She's a daughter. Moreover, Jesus uses this phrase daughter once, and it's about her. Incredible the value he is placing on her. And then he says, go in peace, which is easy for us just to pass by and think, okay, he's wrapping this up so he can get on to the next thing. But this peace he's talking about, this Hebrew notion of shalom, is calling on her the full blessing of God and, 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 and saying, in essence, that she should be fully welcomed and restored into society. In other words, valued the way that he has valued her daughter your faith has made you well go in peace i said it before i'll say it again what she what he did for this woman is astonishing and it's first order business in this paragraph but what also is happening here is jesus teaching the disciples and teaching the crowds and teaching Jairus and teaching us the dignity and the value of all human life. That is that anyone who stops and who reaches out for Jesus has an instant and undivided audience with the creator of the universe. This is our God. And if Jesus is this way, what would it mean for the disciples as they're processing, how do we be like the rabbi? You know, friends, it's really easy to look at the news reports in these days and to see crowds and protesters. And uh, certainly there's all kinds of different things happening in the protests. And it's not my point in this moment to, to comment on those things. I'm asking you just to set that aside and just see the pictures of the crowds. And it is really easy for us as onlookers to simply label them holistically, right? To simply wipe broad labels over them or, or to paint them with broad brushes, to see them as crowds. And yet in this story, we see a Jesus surrounded by a crowd and stopping to affirm and acknowledge the individual to give her a voice, 
to give her a name, to value her story. I can't help but believe as followers of Jesus, this ought to speak to us as we process what's happening in our country uh, in these days. That Jesus, in the midst of the crowd, stops to give voice, to give name, to give understanding. What does that mean for us as we process this? And so I turn back to my original question. What do you believe about God? We ask, do you believe that he's aware? Aware of your needs, even when there's massive crisis going on, still acquainted with you, still lovingly pursuing you. My second question here, do you believe that God loves you and pursues you without bias, impartially, no matter your background, no matter your culture, no matter your predisposition towards him or against him, no matter whether you are ritually clean, super religious, or ritually unclean, haven't been around church in an awfully long time, no matter whether you are a mover and a shaker in society or someone on the fringes, no matter whether you find yourself in a position of power because of the color of your skin or because of the job that you hold or the influence that you wield or a person without power because of the color of your skin, the job that you hold or the influence that you wield. That God pursues you and values you without impartiality. Do you believe this? And then also, do you believe that God loves and values and has a heart for those on the margins. That is, those not in power. Those who have been oppressed. Those who have been victims of injustice. Those who have suffered. Those who have encountered poverty. Those who have been rejected gives my heart great hope to know that God pursues us equally. And it gives my, God, my heart great hope in the midst of these uncertain times to know that our God, the creator of the universe, is not just aware of what's going on in our country, but has a heart moved towards those who have suffered. Well, the third thing, and this is kind of like obvious, so maybe we'll say it quickly, is that Jesus is a healer. Jesus is aware, he's impartial, and he's healer. And so much so that he not only can heal a physical malady or struggle or disorder, but he actually brings life out of death. That is that he raises the dead to life. And we believe that Jesus offers physical healing. We believe that he does it according 
to his will. We pray for it. We seek it. Um, we long for it. Uh, we pray for it for, for many of you. Um, and, and we believe that Jesus can and does move in these ways, that God can and does move in these ways according to his will uh, for his ultimate glory. But we also believe that chiefly God is in the business of speaking life into death, of raising the dead to life. We believe this spiritually. This is what the gospel is. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God intervenes. He speaks life, not because we've done something, Ephesians 2.8, but by grace, God's doing for us. Because of Jesus, through his work on the cross, he speaks life into death. But it's not just spiritual, it's sociological, it's societal, it's global. That God is working to redeem all things, our souls included, and we're so grateful for that. But this world, too, that God is speaking life into this world, that the ultimate victory uh, over sin and death that Jesus has achieved on the cross and that we wait for in the future, the near future, we hope, is that he will set all things right. All things right. That is that he will undo all injustice. He will wipe every tear from the eyes of humanity. This is the gospel, friends. It certainly is a gospel that, that gives us life and renews us spiritually. This is central and significant, but this also has bearing on how we live, that our God is working to restore all things in this world for good and to how they were originally created. And so we are right to say that in racial turmoil, in political turmoil, in the big and huge struggles of this world, the only answer is the gospel. That we can stand and say we stand against injustice, that we're going to teach our kids different. We can stand and say we're for this and we're for that. But inside our broken selves, we are unable of conjuring up some utopian society. It is only the gospel that brings new life, that recreates us, that takes our broken and biased and prejudiced hearts and reforms them in God's image. It is only the gospel, the willingness to accept the reign of Christ in our lives and in our world that sets aside the broken human rule that oppresses other people. The answer truly is the gospel. But it's easy to stand behind that and simply say, the will God can do it, and so I can't be engaged. Well, after all, what, what can I do, right? It's, it's usually as an easy theological or spiritual excuse to sit it out. <laughs> and the truth is, it is overwhelming. I would, I get it, I get it. And yet, if you look in these stories, there is something that joins them together about the moment of healing. It is when... Jesus 
is touched. Right? The woman touches his garment. Jesus grabs the hand of the daughter. And in both cases, there is instant healing. As I was praying and meditating and reading through this passage and processing the struggles of this world, a thought came across my mind. I feel like it's a thought from the Spirit, but I put it in front of you to judge and to assess. Is it possible that in this day, the means by which this world can touch Jesus is the church? Is it no coincidence that we are called the body of Christ? That is, that when the church stands for the things that Jesus stands for, and when we walk in the way of Jesus, when we are people who are aware and impartial, when we are pursuing people, when we are valuing the dignity of all life, when we are engaging and loving people to give them name and story and not lump them into groups, when we are valuing the needs of all kinds of different people, that what we are actually doing is extending the arm of Jesus. And it's the touch of Jesus that brings healing. Again, it's easy to take that second part of the message and say, we've got to do something, and it's through our efforts that change is going to be made. And I would say to you, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you need it both, right? Because the gospel is the only hope. But if we believe that's true then the gospel should empower us to embody the gospel so it can be tasted and touched and consumed and therefore transformed and in so doing and extend a reach of Jesus that Jesus himself can be touched and there and then is the only opportunity for healing. And no one else has this message but the church. And so it matters what we do and how we respond in this season. It matters how we engage our neighbors. It matters what we believe about God. Do you believe that God heals? Do you believe that God can speak life into death? even in the most impossible of situations. Situations where the onlooking world laughs because this is impossible. This is never going to happen. Do we believe that God wants to, intends to, is pursuing and is calling the church to be an agent? What we believe about God changes things. Let me leave you with this last thing. Central to this story is not just what we believe about God, but how we respond to what we believe about God. And that's what we call in Christian the Christian life faith, right? And oftentimes faith is associated to a doctrinal set of beliefs, right? 
facts that we believe about God. This is true and this is important, but faith in the New Testament is far greater than that. It's actually active. It moves, right? It is walking. It is going. And we see two significant occurrences of faith that are equal in both these places. Jairus comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. The woman comes and throws herself at the feet of Jesus. That is that they were equally willing to admit their personal insignificance in the presence of Jesus. And they are equally willing to get proximate to Jesus. And they are equally willing to admit their dependence upon Jesus. And Jesus takes these moments of faith and he fans them and invigorates them into something even greater. The timidity of a woman who reaches out for the garment in anonymity is fanned into a bold proclamation of the gospel. When Jesus stops and acknowledges her and says, this is the example of what faith looks like. Daughter, your faith has made you well. And Jairus, perhaps at his last wits, his daughter's life ebbing, comes to the rabbi and throws himself in a last moment, Hail Mary, a desperation plea. And Jesus fans this faith into persistence. A faith that even as it is asked to be patient in the process of redemption and restoration and reconciliation continues and sees life brought out of death. Friends, in these moments, uh, my heart is overwhelmed. I have woken up every day this week sad. He's not like me. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm uncertain. I don't know how to respond. I feel inadequate and unprepared. And yet, when I turn to Jesus, and when I see God, I have hope. <laughs> because God is what I am not. Jesus is what I cannot be on my own. Impartially aware. And moving to heal. And taking my minute and timid and uncertain faith and fanning it into bold persistence. And I pray that he is doing likewise. Jesus, thank you for being the perfect image of God, for being true humanity when we cannot. We pause today and acknowledge that our world is broken, that our country is in disarray, that these are uncertain and tumultuous times. We likewise fall at your feet and acknowledge that we are both part of the problem and incapable. 
and oh by the way have countless problems and needs and concerns of our own and at your feet we remember who you are and we find hope thank you for your proximity to us may we always be proximate to you and help us to extend your arm to a desperate and burdened world. I pray in your name. Amen.